We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com, follow us on Twitter at FDRLST, and make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. So excited about today's guest. We're joined by John McCorder. He is the author of the new book, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. He also teaches linguistics, American studies, and music history at Columbia University. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic. He writes for the New York Times. He's the host of the language podcast, Lexicon Valley, and also the author of over 20 books, including Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever. John, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Emily. Of course. Now, one of the one of the most important arguments you make in woke racism is that anti-racism is more of a religion than an ideology. Can you walk us through that argument a little bit? Well, roughly what I mean is that it's based on a lot of the fundamental tenets of Christianity. And so the way people are encouraged to think of white privilege is almost eerily similar to the way people are encouraged to think about original sin. The way people in this religion, and I really do mean that it's religion, the way they treat people who don't think like they do is very much the way medieval people treated people who did not believe properly in God. In other words, people who aren't believers are treated not as people in disagreement, but as heretics who you can Mm -hmm. barely stand to have in the same room, who you think don't deserve to be employed. All of that is a religious style of thinking rather than it just being a matter of a socio-political program. There is also the fact that there's superstition in this new religion. You're not supposed to ask certain questions. Certain things don't make sense from A to B, but you're just supposed to, in a way, have faith. There are questions that are not allowed. And so if you ask how it is that you can say on the one hand that if a white person doesn't date black people, they're a racist, But then if a white person does date black people, then they must be exotifying that black person deep down. They're racist. The fact that the same people will applaud both make any kind of logical sense. But it does make sense in that you can say both things and attest that you understand what racism is. And that's the basic tenet of this religion. And finally, there are people who are giving me pushback about this comparison to religion, partly because I think religious people feel sullied by (laughs) the comparison, and I completely understand. But it's a really heuristically interesting, not interesting, it's a heuristically necessary way of looking at this, because I want people to realize that when we're dealing with a person who is particularly influenced by this new, radical, anti-racist ideology, you can't reason them out of it, you can't make them see it somewhat differently. It's directly analogous to trying to make a deeply Christian person believe that Jesus doesn't love them. There's no point. You almost wouldn't want to. And there are other things to do. In the same way, you can't teach what I call an elect person out of this ideology. Our job is to start standing up to them, to let them know that they can't have everything they want, or working around them. Because this is not a time when talking about John Stuart Mill and a marketplace of ideas and being open to different ways of looking at things will have any effect. For people like this to say that they need to think differently about racism is like telling them to be more tolerant of pedophilia. They can't see it as anything (laughs) but that. So we have to realize we're faced with a kind of person that we either have to walk around or have the guts to stand up to because we can't make them understand the virtues of compromise and trying to see things in other ways and watering down their ideas because nobody gets everything that they want. This is a very new kind of leftist. 
Mm. And I'm interested in the evolution um, that you talk about some, and it's this. This is an ideology that did start in academia as an ideology. This was a, you know, critical race theory. Take that for an example. This is something that was really sort of on the the fringes. It, it would just sort of it, it was relinquished to the fringes of our our conversation, and it was just in academia. How did it become? How did it morph from that into what is now kind of been a, a mainstreamed religion? What happened? Yeah, this is a way of thinking that usually you knew of as an academic from a certain kind of person. Academia was not awash in tenured radicals, as people started saying in the 90s. It was one person at the table, and you were interested to hear from that one person. But where it jumped the rails partly was social media. A lot of people on social media are academics. Social media is smart in many ways. And academics get their word out on social media, especially Twitter. There is academic Twitter in all sub-varieties of academia. <laughs> and it makes people think in that way. And there was already a kind of racial reckoning happening in the 2000 teens in general, with particularly the high coverage of the, the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. So the seeds, the seeds were laid there. But then something really weird happened in the spring of 2020, when two things came together. George Floyd was murdered in an especially egregious way and in a way that was recorded on video so everybody could watch it. Then this got around at a time when everybody was stuck inside on their computers 24-7 because of the pandemic. That encouraged a certain kind of ideology to be entwined with the impact of that event and to mainstream this notion that the primary way to engage with society is to battle power differentials and to think of everything else as subordinate to that, especially when it comes to power differentials based on race. So that happened. It was a cocktail. It was partly Floyd, partly that everybody was lonely and living on their screens and living in Zoom. And here we are with a really dangerous false consensus emerging as to what we do about the fact that the playing field is still not level for Black people. Has secularization made this sort of fertile ground for something to take root that is ultimately very, very much religious as you as you describe it? Is it is it easier for that to take root in a more secular society? Or you'd point back even to the, the Middle Ages or medieval times. Um, and I think that's a great comparison. I was watching a documentary about the Inquisition the other day, and it was just the, the parallels eerie. were, yeah, they were eerie. Yeah. Right, right. So what, what is it that makes uh, the public fertile ground or, or made the public fertile ground for that at this moment? It's partly the eclipse of former religion because it is perhaps natural to human beings to want to belong to something and to seek something higher. And if you are no longer interested in that in terms of going to church on Sunday and believing in a higher power in that sense, in a way there might be a hole in you. People who don't have anything like that are often unsatisfied. Even if you talk to many atheists, and I count myself among them, many atheists will say that there are other ways they have of believing that give them a sense that there's something more than just making your coffee and paying your groceries and, and dying one day. People need more. And so this sits there as a way that a secular and probably non-believing person will be able to have a religion. Although, let's face it, People who actually are religious, such as Unitarians in particular, are going crazy for this kind of thing, although that may be partly because 
for many Unitarians, there's a huge difference between that and the overt and especially ceremonial Christianity of, say, Catholics. Maybe there was a, a sense of, of, of a void there, but that's me going further than I have any expertise. But we also have to remember that devout Christianity is central to Black American culture, and yet Black people are often quite interested in embracing this new religion as well. So it's not only secularism, but certainly that helps. If this were the America of roughly 125 years ago, this new religion would have had less purchase because people were too busy with a real one. It's really difficult to quantify this, but it, what's your take on how widespread um, this religion is in the Black community? Yeah, it's it's impossible to quantify, but I would say this. The reason it looks like all Black people, but me and maybe six or seven others think that way, <laughs> is because Black people in academia and journalism think this way almost to a man. In academia, mm -hmm. it would be essentially all. In the media, there are plenty of dissenters, but the ones who really get around are all true believers. And so that can look like the Black view. And a lot of those people will say that that way of looking at things is the Black view and views like mine are something marginal that only white people like. But if you're actually looking around among ordinary Black people who are not writing for the New York Times and are not working at Princeton, et cetera, you find not only the social conservatism, that's, a, you know, that's something that everybody has long known about the Black community, but you find that ordinary Black people are not as enamored with this yes, we can't defeatist kind of message where you're supposed to walk around obsessed with exactly the extent to which white people see you as whole, et cetera. That's, some, that's an academic and media conceit. And to me, the idea that educated Black America is a stand-in for all of it is extremely elitist and also a little ominously convenient. So my sense is that if you really could do a headcount, it's, and this is, this is just, I'm, 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 uh, it's a little arbitrary, but my sense is that if you could gather all of Black America into some one large space and you kind of polled people on how they felt about these things, it's about one in three who would have the politics of, say, ta Coates. And that doesn't mean that it's insignificant. But it, I don't think it's even a majority among Black people. It's just that it looks like it because it's only people like, you know, Ibram Kendi who wind up writing for The Atlantic, et cetera. There are people like me, but in that setting, we're in the minority. And so we look like oddballs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the most obvious example here is defund the police. Um, you know, the, the, there was so much elite chatter about the necessity of it. And then turned out when polls were done uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't especially popular among the black community the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade as we cover here all of the time but security tools are one of those things that's mostly stayed the same Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts finances and devices and more all in one easy-to-use app. Aura provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast. Like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with a million dollars in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. 
Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your information and devices with one simple subscription. How nice is that? With an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues. So for a limited time, Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash Federalist. Go to Aura.com slash Federalist to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash Federalist. That brings us to an interesting question of when you have this sort of top-down um, attempt to sort of change the culture, do you think there's enough resistance to wokeness to neuter it or to sort of kill it? Um, because, you know, from the, the broader public's perspective, they're not really buying what uh, elites are selling. I think it's already happening. I think there's a pushback. I think all of us were kind of stunned and rubbing our eyes during the pandemic. But I think it's becoming clear that something's gone off the rails, that people are being fired for ridiculous reasons, that people are being roasted in the media for things that don't make sense. And, you know, you can fool some of the people some of the time, you know, et cetera. I think that it's getting to the point that a sensible majority of people who are concerned and sensitive and enlightened, but not radical extremists, are seeing that we need to stand up against this sort of thing. And so, for example... I must admit, I sometimes wonder with the kinds of people who say defund the police. I mean, I'm almost relieved to see that most of them are white, because if anybody black says that, (laughs) I think, who do you go see at Thanksgiving? You know, when you visit your family, unless you're extremely fortunate and all of your family are Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, you go into, you know, less than glamorous neighborhoods. Do you really think that the people around you, including your own family, want the police to be funded even less? Even, you know, let's not talk about getting rid of the police, but do you think there needs to be this defunding? Is that what your great aunt wants? Is that what your cousins want? And I think a lot of white people have no way of knowing, and they assume that everybody in poor black communities has their fists up in the air railing against the cops. They may be angry at the cops for killing someone, but that doesn't mean that they don't want the cops around to deal with the problems in their own neighborhood. Yeah, there's going to be a pushback against this sort of thing. And I wrote this book to be part of it. This book is something that I wrote in order to ride what I think of as a healthy wave of resistance to these extremes. Yeah, that's I was going to ask, actually, when you said you think it's happening, do you think it's happening because and and this is my impression of it, people are saying not just like, oh, well, we need to engage with this, it's wrong, but they're saying like flat out, this is ridiculous and pushing back aggressively. Do you think that's part of how it's defeated? Yeah. And the problem is that for many people, they're only going to say that it's ridiculous over a glass of wine when nobody (laughs) can hear it. And what I'm trying to do is make people more comfortable saying it out loud. You know, everybody at this point says woke with a little bit of a smirk. That's part of the general resistance, you know, including people who are very concerned with making the world a better place. But that smirk isn't enough. And what's needed is open bravery. And to the extent that Black people writing about this and saying a great many of us understand that you can resist this stuff and not be a racist. That means that somebody like me is trying to be part of all of that, because I think a lot of white people are very afraid of being called racist. I see why. But it can get to the point that your fear of being called a racist, really by a certain vocal, overeducated minority, can be such that you end up not able to help real Black people. And then you just get this reign of terror and a whole lot of kabuki. And that's 
not what a mature society is supposed to operate on the basis of. Yeah, and it, it I think has had very real consequences um, over the last year in terms of homicide rates spiking in certain cities, just here in D.C., for example. Um, and yeah, that's <laughs> it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a very sad uh, state of affairs. But I, I agree with you, the tide is turning. Um, I'm curious for your take on whether phrases like racism and bigotry have been diluted by these efforts, because when you have the president of the United States calling pretty anodyne voting legislation um, in red states, Jim Crow 2.0, um, or Jim Eagle, I think is what he said. Mm -hmm. Do you think that dilutes our, our collective understanding of, of what was happening in this country just five decades ago? Uh, is it to, to make those comparisons, does that do something to the our definitions of these phrases? Yeah, I think it it makes for mess. And as a linguist, I know that languages are always messy. And as a person, I know that societal change is always messy. But yeah, to say that a Republican operative who targets Black people and tries to make it harder for Black people to vote, because that will mean fewer Democrats voting and therefore more Republican power, that to me is one of the most callously Machiavellian and disgusting things I have ever heard in modern America. It's just, it's just mean. However, that said, the idea that that person is the same thing as the Mississippi segregationist who doesn't want black people to vote because he thinks black people are animals, to say that it's the same thing is a rhetorical score, but it's an extremely blunt, willfully misunderstanding reading of what human beings are actually like and how much progress there's been. I am really against what Republicans are trying to do to voter laws for that pragmatic reason. I am happy to see that apparently on the ground it doesn't have as much effect as one might think. But to call that, you know, Jim Eagle, no, I don't agree. And overall, I think that we overuse the word racism. And the reason that it's a problem is because it makes people think that what we're battling is an immoral bias, even if it's somehow abstract, although that gets to be an extremely abstract concept in itself, as opposed to the complexity of a society that's existing in the wake of that kind of bias, often now many decades ago. It oversimplifies to call these things structural racism, but you can't change a term. It's already settled in, so we just have to deal with it. Yeah, that's a huge part of Kendi's project is changing our understanding of the word racism. And what they do is, as, as you well know, is use the word racism to encompass absolutely everything that might have impacts on something disproportionately in one community or the other. Um, and I guess I worry, and I wonder how much you worry about this, that it's extremely problematic when we can't share definitions of things like racism, um, because that's a term that's stigmatized. It's a, an ideology that's been deeply stigmatized. And so if you're now lumping decent people who maybe think Colin Kaepernick should, Kaepernick should stand for the national anthem in with like actual legitimate racists, it, it seems like that has a huge, huge effect on the way we see each other as Americans. And of course you're right, and I'm sure you know that there are people who would listen to you say that and think that you just don't understand how racism operates, you don't understand the degree of your complicity, and that there's some work you need to do on yourself. Yes. And that's, <laughs> frankly, it's not fair. But what's even harder is not only can we not agree on the definitions, but to the extent that we know what the other person means, if we disagree, we're inclined to just kind of hush. And so, for example, that idea that Kendi puts out that if there's any disparity it's due to racism in some way. 
frankly, I think three out of four people can immediately sense that that is the, the conclusion of somebody who's oversimplifying out of a basic lack of genuine curiosity about how societies actually work. That is not an academic view. It's not constructive. It's, it's a dumbed down vision of what life is. Everybody can see that, but you're afraid to say anything because the person who says it has, you know, this presence, including having dark skin and dreadlocks while wearing a suit that's seen as, you know, having some sort of mystique. And so you feel like you're not supposed to speak out against it. And that's bad too, because it means that we're operating on the basis of a general mendacity. We don't mean what we're saying. We don't say what we mean. We walk around tiptoeing. It's time to stop that. We need to start being more honest with each other, even if it means that a certain kind of misguided person is going to yell and scream at you as a white supremacist on Twitter. We need to get used to that kind of person making a certain kind of noise without mm. having them make us dishonest with ourselves and also give up on actually helping Black people. You have a great piece in the New York Times um, that where the headline is "Woke Went the Way of PC and Liberal." Can you explain the evolution of the word "woke"? Because it, it does have a super, super interesting history, and it, it, the definition seems to be changing all the time. Uh, can you break that down for us? Yeah, "woke" starts as meaning aware to larger operations of society beyond just overt racism. It's a leftist understanding of what you might call the man with a capital M, and being aware of these larger forces. It was a neutral term. It was used at first within the Black community. Then it jumped the rails about 10 years ago into mainstream parlance. And what woke meant was that you're politically aware, that you pay attention to such things, that you understand that a basic idea that everybody can succeed if they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps is oversimplified. You're, you're woke to the realities. You're awakened to a more interesting and, and more realistic and detailed view than that. Unfortunately, a certain kind of woke person got so mean, got so prosecutorial, got so smug, especially about a few years ago, but then really last two summers ago, that wokeness became associated with somebody sticking their finger in your face and calling you names and unable to understand that radical leftism is not the only legitimate view of the world. Enough people got irritated with that, including people left of center, that I would say that roughly in the summer of 2020, you stopped being able to use woke to just mean awake. I kept trying to, and I only realized about three months ago that woke <laughs> is now a slur. You can't use woke to mean just awake politically anymore. Now it means a certain kind of person who gets on your nerves. And so now you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that young people don't use it anymore. I'm not sure if she realizes that the reason young people aren't using it is because they feel that it's a slur and they feel uncomfortable with its implications. And that's and I'm not blaming her for this, but it's not just that it's old fashioned. It's that it's now a slur because some people would say it's because most of America doesn't want black people to succeed and resist the left because they want to preserve their own imperatives and interests. All of that to me sounds like a play that somebody wrote. Most of it has been that the woke got mean. And so people stopped liking them. And I think for legitimate reasons. So that's the history of the word woke. Yeah. And it's interesting because it was really embraced by the entire sort of legacy media and celebrities. And, and even so, it would it still sort of was transformed into a slur. Do you think that speaks to the, I guess, the the power that the public still has to define its own terms? Yeah. 
I mean, these things are going to happen whether we like them or not. I wish, this doesn't really come out in the piece that I wrote as much as I wish it had, but I wish that there were still a neutral term. I hope that one comes up because I always thought of myself as a woke person, despite what many people would think, but instead it's, it's moved. And once again, I think many people think that public is just engaging in a backlash that's motivated by racism. I don't see that. I see it as that most people want a certain kind of civility and they don't like being told that there's one way of looking at things that if they don't, they are moral perverts, especially when it's something as peculiar and particular as this new form of quote unquote anti-racism. When you read Kendi or if you read <laughs> Robin D'Angelo, some of if you sort of stripped away the context and put it in front of somebody and juxtaposed it with something that was written in the Jim Crow era, they might actually think the both pieces of writing were written in the same era um, because it is sometimes so overtly racist. Why is it that they do not interpret it that way? And other people look at this and say, this is, this is naked racism, but they see it as in fact, anti-racism. Well, to tell you the truth, I think that they are both of a type and I'm not trying to be ad hominem. I'm trying not to be ad hominem here, but they develop a sense of their purpose as people and as thinkers in calling attention to racism in depicting America as riven with it to an extent that strains the credulity of most people. But they think they're doing, you know, as it were, God's work, and they're not reachable, partly because, as I say in my discussions with Glenn Lowry on Blogging Heads, if that is the core of your being, if that's what you've devoted your entire self to, and notice I didn't say career, I don't think it's about money, but if that's yourself, to be deprived of it, to open up to evidence that you might have missed some things, is to lose your whole sense of self and purpose. None of us are open to that. I certainly wouldn't be. And so, yeah, that means that you read these pieces, and one, you would think they were written at a time when people were still being lynched. That's really true of you know the work of both of them. But also the condescending approach that they suggest towards Black people. This I don't think they're aware of. Looks alarmingly like something that could have been written 100 years ago. They think that's okay because in their minds, the kind of abuse that Black people are undergoing is such that it's wrong to expect us to perform beyond a certain level. And that's not something somebody was saying 100 years ago. To them, they see civil rights leaders with three names and their hair parted down the middle 100 and 125 <laughs> years ago saying, be your best show white America what we can do and we shall overcome. They think of that as naive. They think that we need to completely change our sense of the game. And you know, they're not fools in that. You can read people 125 years ago thinking that if black people founded businesses and learned Greek and behaved, that everything would be okay. That was not true. That was definitely naive. However, the extreme that we have now is because white people are not perfect in that way, because white cops can be extremely imperfect in that way, then for black people, it is a victory to just show up and how dare you expect us to actually push ourselves beyond a certain point. That's new, that's radical, that's very modern, and they have their right to that ideology. But where the problem comes in is they're implying that if we don't think like them, we're moral perverts. That's the problem, because frankly, mm -hmm. most people, including black people, will never think like them. Mm -hmm. Are your thoughts running in endless circles in your mind? I know I've been there. 
with the stresses of the last couple of years, it's more important than ever to practice living healthier and happier lives. We talk about that on this show all the time. So what if a few minutes was all it took to change your relationship with stress and anxiety, transforming your life for the better? Well, that's the power of meditation with Headspace. Our thoughts can be confusing enough. Meditation doesn't have to be. Headspace is your convenient dose of meditation, mindfulness, and sleep exercises to relieve stress and anxiety and help you get a good night's sleep all in one app, making it super easy to catch your breath and to make time for your mental health. And it's one of the most science-backed meditation apps in the world, proving meditation works. A study proves in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce your stress by 14%. All right, so Headspace, if you're struggling with stress, if you're struggling with anxiety, you got to give it a try. Let's actually give it a try right now. So either sitting down or lying down, just beginning with a nice big deep breath. In through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe out, you can close the eyes. Allow the breath to return to its natural rhythm. And just take a moment to feel the weight of the body pressing down. Into the seat or the surface beneath you. Just allowing any thoughts, any sensations to come to the surface. The body, the mind, just letting go of those things. As the body begins to unwind, the muscles in the feet and the legs, just switching off, letting go. In the stomach, the chest, the back. Again, the muscles just softening, giving way, just switching off. The arms, the hands, and the fingers. All just letting go. The neck, head. Even the muscles in the face just softening. Letting go as both the body and the mind unwind. And you can either gently open the eyes again or just leave them shut now. Meditation is surprisingly helpful. I've recently found Headspace and I'm excited to learn how to use it to meditate because it can really be a powerful, powerful tool, more than you even realize if you've never done it. So find some Headspace at headspace.com federalist and get one month free of their entire meditation library. This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com federalist today. Headspace.com federalist. So you've actually spent a lot of time making this argument in conservative spaces, like right now. Um, and if, if in that experience, is there anything you you think that the right continues to get really wrong when it comes to race in America and could do better? Um, yeah, there's one particular, and I would say that actually, since my Manhattan Institute days, I do not 
try to communicate my views mostly within conservative spaces, but I have been in them and I respect many of them. The main thing that people on the right get wrong about the race thing is that they seem to think that every everybody is Al Sharpton in 1987. A lot of people <laughs> on the right think that black people who engage in this kind of rhetoric and exaggeration are doing it to seek power because they know that all of this is a kind of rhetorical club that they can use to get what they want. What they're missing is they're not looking at what does the black person want and why do they want that? They're not looking for power. It's not that they're trying to be the head of committees. They're working out something psychological is the issue. Anybody who engages in this kind of rhetoric is somebody who's seized by the victimization mindset into exaggerating their victimhood and deriving a sense of purpose from proclaiming it to the world and telling the world that only so much can be expected of them because of being a victim. That is a human type, the martyr, the victim. Black America is encouraged to OD on that. But there's a certain kind of, especially older right-wing person, but I'm beginning to hear this even from people on the right in their 30s. They seem to think that it's somebody like Sharpton when he was young, running around in velour tracksuits, making noise and saying mean things because he was trying to become basically the successor to Martin Luther King and Jesse Jackson. And Sharpton has mellowed considerably since then, but that person then, that cartoon vision of it is fair. That is not why a black person takes over a faculty meeting and calls everybody a racist. That is not why Ibram Kendi writes the things that he does. It's a victimization complex. It's not seeking power. So this this particular book tour, you've written many books. Has there been anything different about this one? And what has your experience been like since 2020 being a, a heterodox uh, black voice in the space when uh, the, the cost of speaking up seems at least to be so high? Well, you know, I am um, I'm a much less self-directed person than many people think. Things just kind of happen to me. Or when it comes to books, I generally write them because I'm mad about something or I'm passionate about something and I just want to share. And so in June 2020, I was definitely not thinking, I shall have the most successful book that I will ever write by jumping on the bandwagon of all of this nonsense that is happening in the wake of George Floyd. It was, I am effing mad. I am disgusted at all of these people being hurt for nothing. I'm disgusted at a book like White Fragility being being treated as a valid portrait of what a Black American of cognitive health is like. And I happened to write fast, and so I just wrote it. I wrote it, frankly, in about 10 minutes, and I figured, you know, this needs to get out there from a Black person and talk about the dangers. You know, I'm no longer at the beginning of my career. I'm an established scholar. Contrary to popular belief, I don't have tenure at Columbia, but, you know, the chances that a middle-aged black professor is going to be discontinued from a university because of his heterodox views. It could happen. I know that the mob could come after me, but the chances of it happening are smaller than it happening if I were, say, 30 years old. And so I just figured I'm not in that much danger. I have many streams of income. I don't think I'm going to be winding up living on anybody's couch. And these sorts of things need to be said. And so, yeah, I didn't do it out of a sense of bravery. I didn't do it out of a sense of wanting to have a hit book, but it is uh, at least something of a hit. And what that says to me is that it reinforces my sense that I'm not writing out of the wilderness. I am writing for a great many people who are very concerned with what's going on. And some of them are on the right, 
but a great many of them are not, and a great many of them are black and brown. I think this is most people, and what we're doing is we're cowering under the threat of being smacked by a certain vocal minority who call us names on Twitter if we don't give them what they want. Yeah, <clears throat> I was actually just going to ask, um, behind closed doors at Columbia or at the New York Times or the Atlantic, do you get a lot of uh, sort of encouragement from people uh, who maybe would be surprising to to others to hear? But like, do you, do you get a lot of people saying quietly, sending you messages or whatever, like, keep going? You know, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I have to imagine that happens all the time. I get a, a torrent. I get a fire hose <laughs> of that. And not necessarily, well, you know what? I hadn't thought of it, including from a great many Columbia faculty, without mm -hmm. a doubt, you know, kind of under, under the radar. And I can say something about the New York Times, which is that the sorts of things that we've seen happening there over the past two or three years, that is something that is driven by a minority. Most people who work at the New York Times are not in favor of this particular hard left, extremely radical view of what it is to create an offense. And at the Atlantic, yes, I feel supported by the people who run the Atlantic. I'm sure there are people who write for the Atlantic who think I'm the devil's spawn, but <laughs> that is not what most people who work for the Atlantic think. And so, yeah, all of this is a matter of those of us who have the wherewithal to speak up, because this is not the way most people think. It's just the way we're being forced to pretend to think by some really scary and usually hyper-articulate people. Hmm. John McCorder, author of Woke Racism, Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Emily. Thank you very much. Of course. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious.